0: Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to first apologize for the long delay since my last episode, I had a very difficult summer and was unable to complete the research for these coming episodes in a timely fashion. However, I am now back in the saddle and do appreciate your understanding and patience. As you all know, this is all about a labor of love, and love sometimes has challenging times. I'd also like to remind listeners of a few things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing any of my human history books, they can be found on Amazon.ca for those in Canada, Amazon.com for those in the USA, and of course, the Friends of Algonquin's online or in-person bookstores. If you'd like any copies signed, please feel free to drop me a line at Clemsong at AlgonquinParkHeritage.com. I also have available Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirts, coffee cups, or other swag, and you can find those through links from my website, www.AlgonquinParkHeritage.com, or by going directly to my Algonquin Defining Moments virtual storefront on www.redbubble.com. As with previous episodes, I'd also like to encourage everyone to reach out and support the Wildlife Research Station in their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. Their website is www.algonquinwrs.ca. I'd also like to remind everyone about the availability now of my two new books, That I'm really excited about. The first is a paperback version of my three part series on Ton Thompson's life, art, and mysterious death on Canoe Lake in 1917, and the mythology that has resulted around him since then. It's for those who'd rather read than listen, or would like a new Algonquin something for their cottage bookshelves. Second is my Algonquin Cottage Cookbook. Early 20th Century Algonquin Cottage Cookery It's a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Jean Bertram Peary. It's part culinary history, Peary family storytelling, and part cookbook, and brings to life what it must have been like working over a hot wood stove miles from civilization during the first half of the 20th century. My third book for the season, which should be available this fall, is called The Grand Trunk Railway Hotels, Stories of Three Algonquin Wilderness Getaways, The Highland Inn, Namanigan, and Minnesing. As mentioned in the beginning of the last episode, archaeology involves more than just digging. Archaeological excavation involves meticulously uncovering what cultural objects or other indicators of activity lie in the ground and recording their location and depth. Despite its size and the designation of the park as a National Historic Site since 1993, there has been relatively little archaeological research done in Algonquin Park. But there has been some mostly done by private researchers, rather than by or at the request and the support of government. In reviewing what archaeological work has been done as research in Algonquin Park over the years, I've used as a guide, with his permission, Roderick Mackay's unpublished background paper, Archaeological Research in Algonquin Provincial Park, and Immediate Vicinity to 2023. The complete list of the other background articles can be found in the show notes, so I won't repeat it here. Mackay's paper was an expansion of Ron Tozer's 1988 summary, which was called Archaeological Resources in Algonquin Provincial Park Report, background paper, which he wrote as naturalist and interpretive services supervisor. After the flurry of activity in the 1970s, and other than the registration of two additional pictograph sites in Algonquin Park in 1984 by archaeologist Thor Conway, not much else happened archaeologically wise neither indigenous nor historic, until the mid-1990s in Algonquin Park. For those interested, Thor Conway has written a fabulous book called Discovering Rock Art. Though not Algonquin Park specific, in it he, quote, shares rare oral histories, legends, and personal experiences collected during 45 years of working with Ojibwe, Odawa, and Algonquian tribal elders. He presents the voices of shamans, healers, and visionaries, who retained vital knowledge about the mysterious images preserved on cliffs, and wanted this knowledge to be available to future generations. So despite what appeared to have been detailed study of the indigenous use of the Algonquin highlands, according to Ron Tozer in his 1988 paper, the body of knowledge resulting from archaeological field research in Algonquin is prone to be even sketchier and more speculative than the historic record things changed a bit in 1996 when a group of amateur and professional archaeologists calling themselves the Bonisher cultural heritage project got permission to conduct archaeological investigations at basin depot under the direction of regional archaeologist chris j anderson then a heritage planner and archaeologist for the ontario ministry of culture over the years from 1998 to 2000 Additional short-term investigations were carried out, many led by Tom Ballantyne. Tom was a consultant archaeologist and a strong supporter of what today is called public archaeology. This involves pairing visitors to a site with an experienced digger and together doing hands-on archaeology. This is especially popular today with student groups of all ages. The investigations at Basin Depot focused on the remains of a blacksmith shop which was a 19th-century stopping place, as well as a couple of storage buildings. In 2003, the Ottawa Chapter of the Ontario Archaeological Society assisted with a project in 2003 to investigate how far from a central location of a typical site there would be artifacts to find. This was carried out at the McIntyre Clearing Farm on the Bonisher River, which dated from the early 1900s which in turn in the 1870s had been a collection of lumber camps. Note that in 2009, the group, under the direction of licensed consultant archaeologist Ken Swayze, returned again to the Basin Depot site and continued work there over an eight-day period in 2009 as part of the Bonnisher Cultural Heritage Project. This involved the Friends of Bonnisher Parks and the Ottawa Chapter of the Ontario Archaeological Society. Special arrangements were made with the park biologist, To accommodate species at risk concerns. At some of those activities there was a limited opportunity for members of the public to participate either in a hands-on manner under supervision or through tours of the site where the archaeologists were working. No follow-up archaeology has taken place at Basin Depot since then. Unlike Lavier in 2001, Martin Cooper, a consultant and senior archaeologist with archaeological and cultural heritage services investigated the possible site of a Hudson Bay Company outpost on Lake Lavier. In addition to a pile of many stones, Cooper found one square iron nail and a quartz flake. Why Lake Lavier, you ask? Well, as you'll recall from episode 46 on Lake Obiongo, part one, Hudson's Bay Company trader John McLean noted in his diary that an outpost on Lake Lavier had, quote, become a regular destination for provisions and supplies an outpost meaning a post away from the main one. In 1824, he wrote of learning, quote, that there were Iroquois traders bound for Lake Lavier in the area, but he was unsuccessful in intercepting them. Also in 1829, Alexander Sheriff, whom you recall was one of the first adventurers in what became Algonquin Park, had reported trading houses located in that section of the lake. In a future episode, I'll share with you some of the stories about John Egan. One of which I'll touch on here was the location of his depot farm that was active in the 1850s and 1860s. Supposedly located near the headwaters of the Bonachure River, various and sundry folks had been unsuccessfully looking for it for years. All that changed in 1979 when my colleague in Algonquin Park human history, Roderick Mackay, author of Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, and Spirits of the Little Bonachure successfully rediscovered it. As he shared in his paper called Potatoes in the Pines, in the 1860s, the 150-acre farm had a cash value of about $3,000. It produced 300 bushels of oats, 600 bushels of potatoes, and lots of hay. With 12 oxen, 2 cows, and 8 horses, there were also an additional 120 horses that were associated with the farm that were used in the lumber business. At the lumber camps, they hauled logs and supplies. This success led to a five-summer study, one full week every August. Over 600 piles of stones taken out of the fields were found. Some may have even been part of a fence line. The foundations for at least six buildings were found, including one which looked like a fireplace structure. Artifacts found included cut iron nails of varying lengths, clay pipe stem fragments, a bowl fragment exhibiting a human face, four small painted white earthenware sherds, a single link of a chain, and fragments of a teacup, window glass, stoneware, a small fragment of a clay pipe, and of a pale bale attachment. Metal items found included major portions of a step stove, two felling axes, two reaping hooks or sickles, two metal shanty plates, wagon parts, two spoons, a hay fork, two lids, two broken skillets, and two decorated stove doors. The success of this adventure hooked Rory, and in 2001, he obtained an avocational archaeological license and proceeded to register a number of sites in the park with the Ministry of Culture. They included a site where indigenous artifacts were found along a small beach, a petroglyph or carving of a hammer and sickle from the 1930s on a rock face, an old dam, and a ranger cabin on the Bonisher River. This, of course, was in addition to some unsuccessful searches for other historic sites. In 2005, he got licensed as a research archaeologist and continued more investigations at the depot farm of John Egan. Alas, this work was contailed soon after due to species-at-risk legislation and concerns. As mentioned previously, in the mid-2000s, licensed avocational archaeologist William Allen got very interested in the farming practices of aboriginal peoples along the Madawaska River. For those unaware, the Madawaska River the largest of the Ontario tributaries of the Ottawa River rises from the eastern flank of the Algonquin Dome of current-day Algonquin Park and flows to its mouth at Arnprior. Even though early explorers never mentioned a word, archaeological evidence indicates that the of watershed, a portion of the vast area of Algonquian, was occupied long before European contact. With this in mind, Allen also started to ask First Nation leaders to join him both on his expeditions, but also in helping him with their design and implementation, so that he could have a better understanding of the voice, spirituality, land use, historical context, and other holistic perspectives. To better explain what he means, here are his own words of what was a turning point in his thinking. Elder William Commanda peered down through the magnifying glass at, at the close up photograph that I had taken at a pictograph site in Algonquin Park. The image showed an upright, long eared figure with a thick, stubby tail, and I wondered what the motif might be. There was a long silence as Elder Commanda slowly slid the tripod with the magnifying glass over different parts of the image lying on the table. I waited. Then he started to speak. It's such a beautiful... And his voice paused. My heart quickened. Was this... Was this the moment that I would find out about the motif in the pictograph? Yes, he said. It's such a beautiful color. Now, I wasn't expecting a comment about color. I thought I'd be hearing about the shape and the meaning of the shape. "'Yes, such a beautiful color,' he continued. "'It's the color of a fox. "'There must be a fox here somewhere.' "'I sat beside him in silence. "'He was looking for a fox within the texture of the rock "'on which the pictograph had been painted. "'After several minutes, Elder Commander raised his head and smiled. "'He looked at me directly and tapped the table with his finger, "'signaling me to look through the magnifying glass. I did so, and much to my surprise, there within the image was the most perfectly proportioned outline of a foxhead. Then it was Elder Commander's turn to ask questions. As you approached this site, what animal shapes were in the rock of the cliff? What angle was the pictograph facing? What was the shape of the horizon on the far shore directly opposite the pictograph? What place nearby could a person stop to look at the pictograph and meditate? What cracks and bumps in the rock were in the immediate vicinity of the pictograph? What shapes were the shadows that crossed the pictograph? What was between this pictograph and the second one about fifty meters away? Did the sound of water lapping against the cliff remind you of anything? I quickly realized that despite my careful measurement and documentation of the pictograph, I had not collected the full scope of physical information about the landscape. Elder Commander was interested in the broader landscape, and in the surface upon which the marks constituting the pictograph had been painted. Called in modern times the masanagan, this refers to a paper, book, letter, or ledger of debts. Bark can be used as the masanagan, as it was with traditional Aboriginal maps and scrolls, but the masanagan that interested Elder Kamanda was a more enduring kind, the rock surface itself. He smiled gently. You can tell me more after you visit that sacred place again. Increasingly, archaeologists are becoming aware that there could be problems in making quick interpretations before considering all the sensory information available at an archaeological site, Allen went on to write. The field of sensory archaeology alerts us that, quote, archaeological interpretation has traditionally been dominated by visual descriptions thus effectively marginalizing the senses of smell, taste, hearing, and touch as unmeasurable ways of engaging with the world. This has led to a silent, odorless, disembodied, and senseless past. Recent work, however, has explored alternative ways to make sense of past societies, investigating soundscapes, olfactory and haptic analyses, and somatic memory as well as other less tangible visual qualities such as shimmer and color. One area of specific interest that Allen kept being drawn back to was Alexander Niven's survey map that marked the location of an Indian clearing on the north shore of Galeri Lake then known as Long Lake. Sharpeau's clearing was clearly marked as a 12-acre irregularly shaped parcel and was one of two, quote, Indian clearings in the township that were marked on the map, the other being the away site on Rock Lake, as previously discussed. To quench his curiosity, Allen decided to begin with the 1871 census and other public records. The 1871 federal census listed three families of Aboriginal origin living in the West Madawaska district in present-day Algonquin Park. Born in Oka. Paul Smojanesh, named Meganish in the census, aged 60, Peter Charbu, aged 44, and Joseph Francis, aged 30. Somogenesh, it turns out, was the Grand High Chief of the Algonquins and Nipissings at the time, and his daughter Mary was married to Peter Charbu, later spelled as Charbot, one presumes, to give it a more European flair. Sad, but likely true. Peter later succeeded his father-in-law as an Algonquin chief. The name Somogenes derives from Jemogenes meaning warrior. According to an 1854 survey by John Snow, the Somogenes homestead was at the head of a portage at the outlet of Long Lake, which is now called Galeri Lake. Not unsurprising, the names of both families were spelled all kinds of different ways, anglicized and others in various church and public records, which makes the tracing of familial roots hard as all of us who have spent any time on Ancestry.com are well aware. William Bell's 1871 timber map labeled the same area an Indian clearing, which must have been unusual as members of the Algonquin nations of this period were not usually depicted as farmers who cleared land or lived in fixed abodes. What is even more interesting is to realize that the area at the head of the lake contained several islands that disappeared when the Whitney Dam was built in the late 1890s, after J.R. Booth's railway came through by the St. Anthony Lumber Company. Armed with this information, Allen and his colleagues decided to investigate. A field inspection showed Niven's map to be quite accurate, with both sites clearly overgrown with mature trees, but identifiable. Interesting to me was and is the fact that both here and in their later investigations of the Franceway site on Rock Lake, quote, There was a terrace at a saddle between high wooded hills above the lake and a good view eastward to the canoe route passing the front door. In both cases, birch have risen in the former clearings. In both cases, large panels of birch bark have been removed from some trees that are scarred. In both clearings, field stones were piled to one side, much as one finds in farms of the 1870s elsewhere. In 2006, test pits at both the Charbot house and barn uncovered, quote, broken windowpane glass, furniture, hardware, clothing remnants, and a fragment of stovepipe damper handle, and all kinds of stovepipe parts that were later deemed to have been manufactured between 1863 and 1893. Trees that were growing on the existing foundation were found to be 95 to 105 years old, which corresponds to the 1890s eviction date when all 46 of Chief Peter Charbo's community were evicted from Nightingale and Lawrence, the two townships they had occupied since 1849. Another interesting potential association is with the 120-acre Patty and Pearlie Farm and Depot, which was located just two kilometers away. According to the 1860 to 1880 census records, Depot Farms produced hay, turnips, potatoes, butter, and sometimes even maple syrup that was bought by the nearby lumber camps. William Purley, who died in 1890 and was a close business associate and friend of J.R. Booth, was a lumber and railroading magnate who established extensive mills in Ottawa at Chaudière Falls. He also had facilities on Victoria Island, which had previously been a traditional Aboriginal gathering location. It was, quote, long known for its significance as a sacred spiritual meeting ground of many aboriginal nations and a sacred site where tobacco offerings were placed in the bedrock potholes created by the swirling water, as noted by others in 1982, 2004, and 2005. Today, Purley has a rock cliff on Rock Lake named after him. Of course, as is well known, Algonquian farmers were also engaged in hunting, trapping, fishing, and gathering in the Algonquin park area and as those of you who have portaged or hiked in Algonquin Park know one of the interesting features of the land are the large boulders that are here and there scattered around the landscape left over from the last ice age. glacial melt these erratics, as the archaeologists call them, come in all shapes and sizes. What is notable about the Charbot site is that several look like they may have played a role, as Allen suggested, in, quote, hiding hunters, channeling game, or being a platform for steadying rifles. Attracted by hunters' calls, large game may have moved through the saddle between the two hills and on downhill to the clearing where there were fewer obstructions. Near one was found a rare .44 caliber Henry Rim-Fired Cartridge, a shell that was only manufactured between 1860 and 1872. Other sites that William Allen investigated during this period from 2006 to 2008 included examining and registering multiple sites on Catfish Lake. This work included conducting test pit studies at Quarry Point Campsite and studying the alignment of sites. On Grand Lake, he found on the surface a chert artifact as well as pottery fragments, which suggest additional woodland period occupation on a site considered to be archaic. On Galeri Lake, he also investigated a farmstead and possible grave site at Purcell Cove, a camboo shanty, and a small site on a small island in the middle of the lake. On Lake Louisa, he checked out Baptiste Camp. Artifacts recovered from a test pit included chert flakes, European ceramics, and metal objects consistent with 19th century occupation. In 2008, on Lake Opiongo, Allen did work in the vicinity of a possible Hudson's Bay trading post. A possible storage pit there, in which there was a small handmade nail, was collected. A test pit was investigated at a nearby site that was thought to be an indigenous campsite. I think it's time for another musical interlude. This is a track called Algonquin Provincial Park and it's part of Dan Gibson Solitude's National Parks and Sanctuaries CD. In 2009, another eight-day excavation was carried out at Basin Depot as part of the Bonnisher Cultural Heritage Project, again involving, as mentioned previously, the Friends of Bonnisher Parks and the Ottawa Chapter of the Ontario Archaeological Society. This time it was under the direction of licensed consultant archaeologist Ken Swayze. Ken is also an adjunct professor at Nipissing University and active in the Nipissing First Nation Archaeology Field School that was established in 2013. A public archaeology day event was held. Special arrangements were made with the park biologists to accommodate species at risk concerns. Alas, the species at risk legislation has meant that no follow-up archaeological excavation has taken place on this site since then. Still very interested in historic archaeology, i.e. the lumbering days, licensed research archaeologist Roderick Mackay investigated a Kambu shanty on the Madawaska River, not far upstream from Lake of Two Rivers in 2008 and 2009. From this work, two journal papers on the results from this site were published. In 2012, at the request of Brad Steenberg, a park naturalist at the time, Mackay visited the site of a relief camp at Lake of Two Rivers' emergency landing strip using a metal detector. His goal was to determine the potential for public archaeology and later registered it as an archaeological site. In 2013, Mackay unsuccessfully attempted to locate a Kambu shanty at Tipup Lake on the Opiongo River, just downstream from the Opiongo Lake Dam. This was interesting because at that location, allegedly was the Cambu shanty operated by Austin and Graham, who were from Renfrew. Alexander Graham, as you might recall in episode 47, was one of the first with a timber cutting license in the Lake Opiongo area. In 1862-63, he, with Colin McDougall, operated along the northwest corner of the east arm of Lake Opiongo, all the way to Lake Lavier. Graham's Cambu shanty was marked on W. Bell's map of timber limits in 1871. A metal detector was used to determine the presence of metal artifacts in the ground, and a few were photographed, including a horseshoe nail, but none were removed from the site. No defined foundation was found, so the site was not registered. Also in 2013, Mackay attempted to find the site of an 1844 big shanty on the Bonasher River, but was also unsuccessful. Most recently, in May 2023, Mackay spent another week investigating another Kambu shanty site on the Madawaska River. In 2011, licensed avocational archaeologist Don Webb worked with his official archaeological mentor in investigating what has been called the Dickerson site on the Bonasher River. This site is less than 500 meters from the Algonquin Park boundary. According to Rory Mackay, in his summary of the archaeological work in Algonquin Park, in an 1847 survey of the Bonisher River, this location was marked as the site of, quote, the Indian Dr. Ignatius's landing and path to his sugar bush. Shovel testing at the site revealed a quite indistinct foundation of a cambu shanty, as well as artifacts that could date from before and did date from after contact, including part of a flintlock firearm. From time to time, the park authorities have called in an archaeologist to check for potential disturbance of a site by bridge construction or the like, but this is not common. One exception took place in 2002, when it was thought that forest harvesting would be inhibited if the Forest Authority was forced to retain the existing buffer zones around the mill dam and the nearby mill dam ranger cabin sites on the Bonisher River. Licensed consultant archaeologist Ken Swayze investigated the features in the two areas and recommended a 100-meter buffer rather than the standard buffer for sites registered. Swayze was also involved in an archaeological project in the vicinity of the Basin Depot garage where an old oil tank was to be removed. And in 2011, he oversaw the replacement of a culvert with a bridge on Basin Creek. In 2014, he investigated the immediate vicinity of a route along which a turtle fence was to be erected at Basin Depot. Another effort initiated by the Algonquin Forest Authority took place in 2013. Tom Ballantyne conducted an archaeological investigation of a roadside area at Captain Young's Depot Farm. This Depot Farm is located in the historic zone between Sand Lake Road and the Petawawa River. Valentine's report mentioned features and a foundation on the landscape that was found along a road that was outside of both the defined study area and the designated historic zone. I'm not sure how that one got resolved, but hope that the designated historic zone was expanded. Other similar archaeological activities may have taken place as directed by Ontario Parks or the Algonquin Forestry Authority, for which reports have been written, but which are unknown to the public. But regardless of what work Ontario Parks or the Algonquin Forestry Authority have done, for those who are experts in the practice of archaeology, four of the big archaeology challenges have been. Number one, lack of previous study recommendations follow up. Number two, no uniform level of quality. Number three, a lack of awareness and acknowledgement of the impacts of natural degeneration, and four broader issue of artifact repatriation, though this last one affects more than just Algonquin Park. This means that it's hard to build any kind of predictive models that could help make future investigations more effective. David Allister wrote a report on some elements of these important topics in 1980 called the Algonquin Historical System Study. Some of his most important conclusions were number one, Pre-contact indigenous resources will require a more thorough site analysis and the development of a more acceptable classification scheme. A system of significant sites for preservation can't be determined from the current database because the current database is inadequate due to inadequate field research. Number 2. Current standards and guidelines for consultant archaeologists which, if followed, could provide the consistency that is needed especially if Ontario parks were willing to take the lead on the conducting of more research. Number three, with more consistency, locations with high potential for archaeological sensitivity could be more easily predicted, especially if there were lots of follow-on seasonal research. As extensive as it was, Dr. Hurley's 1970 work was somewhat cursory. As Rory Mackay has noted, field-walking the length of Lake of Two Rivers' campground beach to look for artifacts and two or three shovel tests does not and did not reveal the extent of traces of indigenous activity that was found with more extensive shovel testing at 5 meter intervals decades later and number 4 even though it was stated in the 1974 park master plan that a cultural heritage management plan would be developed so far this has not happened as a result there are no specific guidelines for management or protection of indigenous archaeological sites there's been no government-sponsored systematic and regular archaeological search for indigenous sites since the early 1970s, nor does there currently seem to be a plan to do so. All of this creates a weird circular argument. A cultural heritage management plan can't be developed because the number of sites isn't known, and how many sites can't be known without a more detailed and up-to-date inventory? Developing the inventory in a consistent way is needed so, so as to have enough data To make good decisions about how to manage Indigenous cultural resources. And good decisions can't be made because there's no cultural heritage management plan. And overall, there aren't enough resources to do any of this. So everything is stuck, and nothing gets managed at all except a mandate to leave all traces in the ground. This, of course, would be fine if there wasn't this thing called natural erosion, and if there wasn't this real need for understanding and help needed for the Indigenous peoples to reclaim their heritage and their stories which in turn can help us all with reconciliation with our colonial past. However, it may also be that the idea of a culture-resources management plan is an outdated concept left over from the 1970s. Maybe the current processes and procedures that are used for current environmental assessments provide enough protection, as do the strict fines, $155 dollars, For damaging, defacing, harming, removing any relic, artifact, natural object, or archaeological site. Of course, this doesn't address the issue around the need for proactive archaeological research, but that's an issue for another day. Moreover, is the issue of repatriation. For those unaware, in the world of archaeology, according to the Ontario Archaeological Society Field Manual, repatriation means, quote, the return of objects of cultural value, to the people for whom they have an ongoing historical, traditional, or ceremonial value. In other words, it's the return of artifacts or human remains from archaeological excavations or those held in museums to First Nations communities. One only has to think about the contents of the British Museum in London to recall how huge an issue this is. Here we have a collection of people who genuinely believe that they are performing a valuable service based on an agreed upon set of rules licensing requirements and in pursuit of a holy grail of building and broadening our collective understanding of the past with the hope that it will influence how we move forward all in the name of quote preserving your heritage for you indigenous artifacts are found bagged tagged and carted away quote unquote never to be seen again in most cases resulting in a lot of dismay suspicion and anger on the part of indigenous peoples, to which no one should be surprised. Archaeologists want all of the items found to be stored safely and be made available for future studies sometime in the future, and the thought of them being reburied or dealt with in some other way that makes them unavailable fills them all with horror. On the other hand, indigenous leaders believe that all artifacts should be returned to the nearest native community, who are free to do whatever they want with them. Hopefully there'll be a middle ground, quote, whereby artifacts that can be repatriated to native-run cultural institutions where both spiritual and scientific considerations can be met, unquote. Adding to the complexity of all of this is an interesting study done by David Pocotilo, Associate Professor of Anthropological Archaeology at the University of British Columbia in 2002. Prokotilo's objective was to survey the Canadian public as to their attitudes regarding archaeological heritage, though Algonquin Park visitors were represented many of his participants. his survey indicated that overall Canadians a believe archaeology is important to better understand Canadian society b strongly support the preservation of archaeological heritage c strongly support the involvement of Aboriginal people in the archaeological record. And D, consider visitation to actual archaeological sites as the most effective way of learning about archaeology. As noted by Joanne Lee in her 2007 paper, The Potential for Public Archaeology in Algonquin Park, quote, all major stakeholders concerned with archaeological heritage and cultural resources programming in Algonquin Park have in common an expressed interest in the preservation and interpretation of the resource for the public. One of the outstanding questions, though, is whether or not there should be a public programs aspect to it, so that in the same way that there is a public program about logging, the lumber exhibit, there can also be an actual archaeological site. As Lee went on to write, quote, it would be a valuable contribution to the interpretive programming about the park's cultural resources and would serve as a vehicle for educating the public to act as stewards of Algonquin's archaeological heritage, unquote. In closing, the best description I read about all of this is in an essay by Philip Mullins, an associate professor at the University of Northern BC in Prince George, on the traditional territory of the Lyditene that was written in Bob Henderson and Sean Blenkinsop's 2022 book, Paddling Pathways, Reflections from a Changing Landscape. His essay is about paddling in the upper Athabasca Valley in and near Jasper National Park. The particulars are different, but the essence is not. And I quote, Moberly's descendants live in the region, visit the valley often, and continue to work for reconciliation and recognition of their history, particularly since 2004. They know and tell their own stories. I recount this because recognizing their lives and efforts is crucial to resisting prevalent notions and interpretations of the land as unpeopled, enabled by this colonial history. Not telling of this history would leave space for those impressions and myths. We appreciate being able to pass through, and we give thanks. I recognize, however, that the power to grant access and permission to paddle that stretch of the river remains with Parks Canada, the Canadian state, who collected our fees, approved our itinerary, and determined what could and could not happen here. They were happy to help us visit and enjoy the landscape, but also ensured that we would abide by park rules, not harvest, and camp in designated spots. We assumed we could gain access and did not have to engage the communities that historically inhabited the areas, who did not have the opportunity to share their stories and experience or benefit from our and others' passage. For our group of paddlers, such connections and opportunity became a choice which we had to mutually pursue. Indigenous communities and the Moberly descendants continue to have to work and negotiate with Parks Canada to tell their stories, gain access and permissions, and seek benefits. As J. Carl Krempoms described in 2011, Parks Canada and the tourism industry, in ways both overt and subtle, have privileged and structured stories, images, and visitor experiences of Jasper, that confirm nationalist approaches to the land as nature and wilderness. These ways of understanding are comfortable and profitable for settlers and their government, but not for indigenous and other communities dispossessed of land and economic opportunities. As Jessica DeWitt wrote in 2021, they are intimately tied to colonialism. This mythology of wilderness masks the way tourists, industries, and managers have shaped and continue to shape local ecologies and economies while marginalizing, denying, dispossessing, and or usurping indigenous and other people's stories, experiences, involvement, and benefit that might challenge the status quo. All of this necessitated by colonialism. All of us hopefully struggling towards truth and reconciliation. And finally, I'd like to close with some comments from a 1981 report called Algonquin Region Archaeological System Study by D. Spital and I quote, a salient characteristic of archaeological resources is that they are non-renewable. Each site is essentially a unique representation of man's activity in the past, and the supply of sites is not infinite. Once a site is lost, it can never be duplicated in the supply of sites remaining. Archaeological resources cannot be recreated, rejuvenated, reclaimed, or made whole again once the context of the cultural debris is disturbed or destroyed. In this respect, archaeological resources are unlike other resources around us. Unlike forest stands and other plant communities, animal populations, and soil and water resources, archaeological sites cannot be improved or grown. They cannot be replaced, and adverse effects cannot be reversed. In addition, many items of material culture are difficult or impossible to destroy completely, but biological remains, Features in the soil, artifacts, and the subtle association between all of these things are constantly changing or disappearing as the result of natural processes. Some sites are relatively stable, while others are undergoing rapid destruction. All of this means that our primary duty must be, quote, the advancement of knowledge concerning the history and culture of specific groups, from as many different perspectives as possible, including, as William Allen so eloquently wrote, quote, investigating soundscapes, olfactory and haptic analyses, and somatic memory, as well as other less tangible visual qualities such as shimmer and color. And in this way, we can explore alternative ways to make sense of past societies. I hope that you've enjoyed this series of episodes on digging up our past, and I also hope that it's given you lots to think about. As with previous episodes, I've posted some interesting photographs of some of the artifacts found on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time.